0: Hello and welcome to another in our series on the films of Stephen King. Today we're going to talk TV and the second of King's books, which is also the second film, the 1979 TV version of Salem's Lot. Now this was originally shown over two nights in America in November 1979 and then in the UK on the BBC in September 1981. Now just as an aside, the reason for that delay is the film was edited for cinema release with some additional gory scenes in certain parts of the world. Now, this was an annoying practice at the time. They did it also with the Spider-Man TV series and a Battlestar Galactica. So it's far more common and irritating than you would think, and thankfully they'll never get away with it today. Anyway, back to Salem's Lot. The three-hour show starred David Sol and James Mason and was directed by Texas Chainsaw director Toby Huber. For those unaware of the plot, it's about the takeover of a small main town by vampires. I'll say no more at the moment, but there will be spoilers as we go through this discussion. As it's over 40 years old, that's not our problem. Now, for this show, we're joined by Niall from Movies in Focus. How are you doing, Niall? I'm feeling pretty good. Um, Thank
1: you guys for having me.
0: Thank you for joining us.
1: Are you a big Stephen King fan? I am a huge Stephen King fan and not to sort of get ahead of ourselves, but Salem's Lot, for me, is probably one of his best books. I put it up there with The Shining, maybe, probably top two. And I'm a big fan of the, the miniseries as well. So it, it's great to be on here having a, a chat about it.
0: So before we start on the show, though, do you want to tell our listeners a little
1: bit about Movies in Focus and where they can find it and check you out? Uh, Movies in Focus, I've been doing it since about 2012. It's on moviesinfocus.com. And it's pretty much just my perspective on films film reviews interviews news so it's kind of whatever takes my fancy on any given day um a lot of modern stuff a lot of kind of older stuff as well yeah I just like to give a a good broad scope from the the big budget blockbusters to low budget films as well so it's it's just somewhere where someone who loves movies and can come and just enjoy themselves and sort of learn hopefully if I've got anything to to pass on
0: and and i would agree i mean i've looked around the site movies in focus and some of your interviews are excellent and i would recommend to anybody listening to this go to the site and have a look at those interviews they're great oh thank you you're too kind so salem's lot ben mears has been away too long and now at last, he's come home.
2: The men fought at Valley Forge. Daddy, come back
0: safe. Home to the childhood memories, to the old familiar faces, to a life unmolested by time.
1: And with your saints, let him rejoice in your presence forever. We ask it through Christ our Lord. Amen.
0: Home to Salem's Lot, a town too
2: good to be true. <laughs> What was that?
0: Did you have noticed the time when the boys left?
2: We shouldn't
3: have gone through the woods. It's a shortcut.
0: They should have been here half an hour ago.
3: Wait, Danny, wait!
0: Something is happening. Something terrible. Now, I did a very high-level thing on the story What's the best way of summing up this plot? It's quite
1: a complex and quite a long book. It's pretty much a small town drama interspersed with a vampire tale of growing fear with a bit of the original Dracula and obviously Nosferatu. Now, what's interesting
0: is Neil has only seen it today. I saw Ooh.
3: I saw half half of it yesterday and the rest of it today. So pretty much two episodes. Today. It just seemed like um, David Soul moving very slowly, trying not to be Hutch.
0: <laughs> and that's not uh, that's not what I saw at all. But we'll come on to that later. So you've come at it from a different perspective. You don't completely know, you, didn't, you didn't know the story. Nope. So from your perspective, you would see it as a, a soap opera with a vampire in Is that what you're saying, Neil?
3: I think so, yeah. I mean, it wasn't that bad. I'm, I'm I'm painting it as a pretty poor picture. I quite enjoyed it, and I'm not a horror fan of any kind. just think they're rubbish most of the time. But this one actually, yeah, it held my interest because I did it over two days, I guess. So watching a three-hour film in one go was, uh, would have been a bit too much. But I actually quite enjoyed it, despite... David Soul. <laughs> I just thought
1: it was awful. Was it simply because of Starsky and Hutch that kind of put you off or
3: I, I think it probably was. Yes. Yes. Uh, I, he just seemed to be trying desperately hard not to be that character from Starsky and Hutch be somebody else and I just
0: uh I met him once. He he's a
3: really nice guy. I'm sure he is. Just you know, this is my initial reaction from what well, basically this afternoon because of the uh, the second half. It's uh, so he's walking in
2: slow motion.
0: <laughs> Graham, <laughs> return us to jump <laughs> part of sanity, please.
2: Yeah, I loved the book. Uh, that was the the first thing, and I, I, I'm going to bore everybody on here. So, Niall, you'll have you'll have this fresh in the '70s and uh, mid '70s when the book came out. I was doing an awful lot of traveling about be on trains. And Salem's Lot was like the hit book of one particular year. And so everybody on the train would be reading Salem's Lot. So when the TV show came out, I was really quite into it. I loved it. I absolutely loved it when I first saw it. I thought it was great and really captured the essence of the book. However, on second watch, I thought it certainly showed its age and I don't think it really made King's book sparkle. It didn't give King's book a cinematic quality, really. And that disappointed me. The first episode is fairly slow, lots and lots of foreboding in it. And the second one is the payoff, and it's much, much better. I think the second bit's much better. And I'm still not quite clear on the, that strange ending with the moon and the skull. So... Overall, I loved it. I thought it was great fun when I originally saw it, and I thought it was okay,
1: not bad when I saw it again. So, yeah. Kyle, well, anything you want to add to that? I think the novel is so dense that even getting it into a, a mini series today, two episodes, mm. I don't really think is enough to do it. And yes, Toby Hooper's take on it is very dated now, obviously because it is so old. Um, so you do watch it now. Yes, like God, it's ripe to be remade, they could really go to town and, and get across pretty much like they did with it. I think there's, there's yes. enough in Salem's Lot for that.
0: I think, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll come on and talk about the potential of a new version later because that's coming. But I don't think it'll be as easy to do as it because no. it naturally breaks itself down into two. This doesn't. I know when they started off with this, they wanted to do it as a film a Shout out to Val of Retro Podcast Massacre. He was telling me that, you know, George Romero was involved at one on this, you know, potentially really? become a film. Yeah, Romero. Wow. Was. That's oh, oh. King yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then Hooper got involved. Hooper was originally involved with the film. Then that fell away. Then he got involved with the TV version. I see what you mean about, and we'll talk about the two parts as well in, in a bit. I accept it's dated a bit, but I love the cast of actors. It was just fun. The wife got up and left the room in 30 minutes, so I had a peace nice quiet quiet myself. Really enjoyed it. I think it holds together, and I think it holds up well. I was still quite impressed with it for reasons I will go into shortly. But before we do that, three of us have read the book. I want to sort of just cover that. What did you miss that was in the book that wasn't in this TV version? Graham, I'll throw it at you first.
2: I think Nile's already covered it. I like, uh, and I've always liked, and I'm a huge Stephen King fan, particularly The Dark Tower, is the three-dimensional nature of his characters and the incredible plotting he does and the pacing of his books are just superb. So when they changed it to a cinematic version, I thought David Soul, to a slightly lesser degree, James Mason, because I just love James Mason, they just didn't seem to fully inhabit the world that King had built for them. And that was so, I mean, the sets and the location work is really quite good for a TV show, but I don't think they really they really fleshed their characters out enough and there wasn't enough of the backstory that you get in the book. It's the same with all Stephen King films. I miss Stephen King in them. You know, I missed his writing, and I, I always think his books are so much better than anything that's ever been put on screen. Apart from maybe The Shawshank Redemption and The Green Mile, they're on, a, uh, on another level. I would add
0: Stand by Me to that, but
1: uh, oh, Nile, yeah, yeah, I'd agree. <laughs> what, what what was missing for you from the book? I totally agree, and it, it really is that sense of character, the development. And just the small details that, that Stephen King gets so right in his writing. It's like I've always thought The Shining, for example, would be a great book if he just took out the entire supernatural element and was just some guy up in a hotel with his family going slightly crazy.
0: And <laughs> You mean like, like Kubrick did?
1: Yeah, but kind of even slightly more grounded than that, you know. And it's the same with Salem's lot. It's the small town details, it's the characters. I'm um, Like you said, you miss Stephen King. And even yes. when Stephen King writes the scripts for his own sort of adaptations, they're never quite as good as what he puts down on the novel page or the short story. Yes, yeah, Stephen King's missing from it. And I, I just think you could probably drag out Salem's Lot to maybe a five, six-parter. And that would give it a bit more room. That's interesting.
2: Just something just popped into my head. If you think of The Green Mile, Tom Hanks's character, is 100% that character immediately. He inhabits that person. And I really didn't feel that with either David Soul or well, maybe not James Mason, but I didn't feel that sort of level of detail. Uh, and that's why I think those two films, The Shawshank Redemption and The Green Mile, are just so good because the characters really come alive and they're cinematic and things happen. And it just is perfect king material this is king but seen through a slight screen you know yeah it just doesn't reach the level that the book did because the book had me when I read it and I'm really looking back 40 years now trying to remember (laughs) remember it I remember it just giving me this odd sensation of dread the whole time and i just didn't get that from the cinematic thing cuz you know something's going to happen and, and king keeps poking you every now and again and you think oh no what's happening now well, oh god something horrible's going to happen and then it does and it doesn't it's not over in a minute it takes hours of going through the book and it's still he's still winding you up so he's a master storyteller as we all know translating his work and getting that level of dread is and that's the problem with this Adaptation. The dread is in the house. Evil houses bring evil men. Didn't quite come across.
1: Yeah, I think it's because it was made for TV. If you you see what Toby Hooper did with Texas Chainsaw, you you know that that man can can give a building dread and uh, fear. Good, good and point. Yeah, I, I see that because it was made for TV in a time where TV was so much more sanitized than it is today. It almost neuters the tension. You know, because of there were ad breaks, there were other factors at play. I, I don't think it was anyone's real artistic vision. It was a compromise. Well, I'll pick that up
0: on Hooper, and I'll come back to, to my views in the book in a minute, because I want to pick up on that, because I think there are two Toby Hoopers. There's before this and after this, because if you look at Texas Chainsaw and Death Trap and films like that that are gritty and are raw and are nasty, then you've got this, Funhouse, Poltergeist. You know, those three sort of link together. If you look at particularly at Funhouse and Poltergeist, there's no gore in them. There's more of a sense of fun than a sense of dread. I just think this in some way changed him, and I don't know and I can't put my finger on why. I loved
2: Poltergeist. I thought it was a great, great film.
1: I mean, there's obviously the stories about Poltergeist and who really directed it. So, oh, yeah. you know. <laughs> which is a, a podcast for another time. But yeah. I, I I could just be making this up, but I, I believe that Toby Hooper kind of went through the wars and a lot of battles with studios and producers. And I don't think he had the disposition to, to sort of have those battles continuously. And I think sometimes he just threw his hands up and went, I'll, I'll make whatever you want me to make, which I think impacted his stamp as a great filmmaker. And I think sometimes you can see that in the material, obviously Poltergeist, but even this, it, it it's very much a journeyman's presentation. Whereas you look at something like Texas Chainsaw, that's a visceral director-driven nightmare, which is very different from Salem's Lot.
0: But his biggest battle on this, and I know this from this Pooper's commentary track on Salem's Lot, is getting the rig to have the children vampires come through those windows. That was something he wanted to do. The studio didn't want him to do it. They didn't want to waste money on that. They'd rather him concentrate on a cheaper way of doing the effects. And that rig was something that had never been done before. So they were really worried it was going to slow production down. But when it worked, and it worked because he did it all in reverse, they wanted more of that rig. So I think that was the one major battle he had on this film. And that's the thing everyone
1: takes away from it. It's that kid coming through the window. Yeah.
0: You you see him coming through the window. So, and there's nothing holding him. There's nothing above him. There's no wires. It wasn't done like that. That's fascinating. I just want to jump back to the book. and And the bit that I miss is Hubie Marston. That backstory where Marston, why that house was built, what it became, and how Marston got Barlow and Stryker to come there in the first place. That's the bit I would have loved to
1: have seen, and I think that's the the sort of the compromise you have to make. That's the bit of Stephen King; he goes into places that you don't want people normally to go to, and he makes it. I'm going to say palatable. It's not quite a word, but they just. I mean, obviously, the the mini was a David Soul starring vehicle, and yes. therefore, the, the more David Soul, the better, probably for the the final product. Getting him to set in the day,
0: they had to have minders because even though it was in small town California, they were filming it. There were loads of people there every day wanting to get his autograph. So they had minders, including Hooper. He joined in on this to make sure they could get David Soul to the set. Crazy.
3: Maybe they should have just left David Soul with the fans and put somebody else in there.
2: <laughs> oh, we're going to come on. I've got the old man in the corner. Yeah, we're going to. <laughs> we're going to talk <laughs> Again. About...
0: We're going to talk about him at the moment. So let's talk about this two-episode approach and Paul Monash. And, and I really want to link them together because Manash who was also a producer on Carrie, wrote the script for this. Now, he was the head writer on Peyton Place, which is very, very soap opera. Well before your time now, we just about <laughs> remember it, the end of the 60s.
2: You're kidding. It was my mum and dad's favourite. <laughs> so it was def- definitely not my generation, I can tell you.
0: I remember the first night it was shown. They had an episode of The Adams Family and then Peyton Place, the first episode of both.
2: Well, we'd have been sent out of the room after The Adams Family.
3: <laughs> We're just becoming old people again, don't worry now. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: Oh, bloody parents sending no, us out. Yeah. It was so much better in our day.
0: <laughs> so Monash comes in, Peyton Place, that soap opera feel, and that definitely comes across in the first half. So you were saying, you know, that the first half is the warm-up. I would say it warm-up scene setter, and then he plays around with it, admittedly on a small scale. I mean, what were there, three, four vampires in around Barla's coffin at the end? But I just thought the way he played that, that soap opera to horror, for me, really worked, almost like a Dark Shadows thing for late-night TV.
1: Yeah, I mean... I think the ending, it, it sort of really builds to the climax. I mean, there's the sequence in the kitchen where um, Kurt Barlow or wh- whatever he is, Nosferatu, kind of comes in and there's that violent sequence and it builds, you know, from that point onwards. I think you need that soap opera element to draw you into the characters and then good horror films of good characterization And I think as... Flawed as it might be, Silum's Lot has great characterization. And then once things go to hell at the end, that makes it worthwhile.
2: That's yeah.
0: a good point. Uh, yeah. Because uh, this was amazingly, at its time, the costliest miniseries that had ever been made on TV.
2: Holy crap.
0: Yeah. Uh, four million. So half the budget of Star Wars, which was made, what, about two years earlier than this? Oh, nice. And Sol and Mason, obviously, we've got a lot of money. But that production at the end, you know, that staircase, which they took from Gone with the Wind, they've <laughs> modelled that whole <laughs> inside of the house. On, Horror classic. Not, yeah, not on, Tara, not on Tara, but on the other house that Red Butler built. If you go back and look at that now, you will see that staircase. Ah. Huh. hilarious!
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Blimey. Quite frankly, Mr. Barlow, I don't give a damn. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because so then the look of it, you know, when you get into the house and when you look at it from the outside, it has certain, I think, a, a resemblance to the psycho house Yeah, with the odd mm. angles. Yeah. Uh, and, and then you get into it and it's everything's decayed. My first thought was, and Darren, if you're listening to this, sorry, mate, but <laughs> my first thought was how does – striker keep everything clean and not mildew on his clothes and why come he doesn't smell you know <laughs> yeah it's just a thought that occurred to me as i was watching it
2: practical um, as ever
0: yeah but that design of it i i thought was brilliant you could see where the money was spent
3: yeah. uh, the, when they got into the house it really sort of started going There was just one little bit that i couldn't stand it tainted my entire watching really he, uh, yeah the house was fantastic
0: yeah. By the way, that house—the outside was actually built around a real house, and the people <laughs> who lived in that house stayed there during production.
3: <laughs> so, that's, very, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's just that?
0: just a bizarre thing. Hooper said they found what they wanted. It was the one of the few places in California that could pass for Maine. So they wanted that hill. They wanted the the, the house that they. But it had a normal house at that point. So they paid these people a load of money and built, and literally all four sides of the house, they built around with this mock-up of the Marsden house. It's effective. I think, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah, it works.
0: So let's talk performances then, because this has been coming. David Soule. I went up there once. On a dare. You know how kids are.
3: I was sweating scared. I sneaked around. Got into the house. What did you see? Ghosts. Everything. Every sound. Every shadow. I'm not sure what I saw. I, uh... I think I saw Hubie Marston hanging by his neck. His face green, his eyes puffed shut. His hands livid. It ghastly. And then he opened his eyes. He looked at me.
0: He looked at me. And I took off. And I ran. I ran as fast as I could. I've never forgotten that. I'm going to throw my two penneth in first here. I thought Sol was brilliant. I thought the anxiety that that character has, you know, that he couldn't go back into the house when he relays the story of what happens to him as a child... And he's just fired up on anxiety the whole way through the show. The sweating, the looking, the the actions. And I thought he was superb. So Neil.
3: He does have his moments. I I, I agree. I'm I'm trashing him, but he's not that bad. There are good bits. And as you say, he is scared stiff and it shows. And he, he does do that very well. All I can see is Hutch. And thinking, <laughs> how goodness sake, sort it out, mate! Just rush in there, shoot everybody, and go home. You know, <laughs> okay. How
0: difficult can this be? Let's return to Salem's Lot.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no. So you see, I quite like David, so, and I think you're kind of looking at it from retrospectively because he's so typecast, you know, from yeah. Scarsky and Hutch. So. He's almost retroactively doing it a disservice, which isn't his fault. I and mean, no. it can be looked at now, and you go, "Well, who would be better?" And you go, "Well, Robert Redford, if they made it, you know, a, a big screen thing or something like that." But he, he's perfectly great for being a TV actor in that role at that time. It's just we don't see him in anything else since, really. I think the last thing I saw him in was. Uh, a Perry Mason episode from about 1990. He's so typecast in one role. You can't take that away from what he does in Salem's Lots.
3: My, my initial reaction maybe was a little harsh, but uh, yeah, he wasn't that bad. He does have a problem with being typecast, doesn't he? So fair play to him.
2: Graham. I thought he was okay. Um, there were some scenes that stood out for me when he was trying to build a crucifix. Uh, while, yes, yeah, while and again, he was that fear, in the um, mortuary yeah, and yeah. the anxiety, I thought that worked quite well. Yeah. And he was constantly looking over his shoulders, and thing, things were getting worse and worse. I thought that was good. I thought his interaction with people in the town was little forced, and the, the ex-boyfriend and that sort of stuff. I thought, yeah, okay, that's very Starsky and Hutch. Although he did get beaten up, actually. So maybe yeah, not.
0: I'll touch on that in a minute, and what and the damage <laughs> that that caused to me.
2: Yeah, so uh, yeah, I thought he was fine. I just loved Mason. I thought he was great. He was just this sort of weird, detached, almost sort of servant to a, a vampire. I thought he played it really well, and I also liked. Uh, I thought Bonnie Bedelia was was very good as well and a great supporting role there, Uh, plus the father doctor. uh, And, yeah, all all together, a good ensemble cast, and I thought Soul was okay. I didn't watch much Starsky and Hutch as a kid, so I suppose um, I I didn't have him so tightly ingrained in my head.
3: Mm, Yeah, that that definitely did with me.
0: You know Bonnie Bedelia is most famous for for playing, don't you? Miss Gennaro yeah yeah the story of the beating up (laughs) yeah so when Salem's Lot was shown on TV for the second time and I was seeing somebody and I said to her you'll love this if you haven't seen it before you'll really love this and I was sitting there all cocky and confident because I'd seen it and I knew what effect horror had on her anyway and uh, I'd forgotten about the bit where the bloody boyfriend's hiding behind the thing. So we're drinking, you know, I'm drinking a glass of red wine, chatting away and watching this. And he leapt out, and the glass of red wine went all over me. <laughs> Absolutely covered from head to foot in a full glass of red bloody wine.
3: I was eating a pizza. I was nearly wearing
0: it.
2: <laughs> but yeah, Don't no, that... you just pay attention, you two. You're always doing something else. God. <laughs>
0: yeah let's gloss on that, shall we? uh right, okay, moving on, James Mason, yeah, the man with lines like "You'll enjoy Mr. Barlow and he'll enjoy you. <laughs> Niall, what do you think of James Mason?
1: Do you know what I think James Mason is brilliant, and it it's one of those things kind of like Donald Pleasance in Halloween. They kind of they whip out these you know English yeah. character actors, and it adds a bit of class. No matter how silly it might be, you, you kind of believe it or you go with it or you kind of go, well, it's almost Shakespearean because obviously James Mason's doing it, you know. <laughs> yes. And I, I think yes. it, that helps sell it as a, as a quality product, whereas if you had have had another equivalent of David soul in that role, it would have felt cheaper. So I think he just makes it feel like a quality product.
2: You can do nothing against the master.
3: Stop, holy man! Cut the boy's throat back back holy man back shaman back priest what would you give for this miserable boy what do you ask what would you give to reprieve him this night to save him for another night what do you want the master wants you throw away your cross face the master your
2: faith against his faith could you do that? Is your faith
1: enough?
0: At that time, you'd have had somebody like Peter Strauss. Yes.
1: Um, yeah. W-
0: would have been on there. And I think, I like Strauss, but I don't think he would have given to this, what, almost a pulpy quality. And and I mean that in a really nice way. And I think he, he was good in that. But Mason, I mean, there's a lovely story from set. You can tell I've been listening to, to the um, commentary track where, Uh, Toby Hooper was in the back filming with a handheld camera, filming Mason as they're driving down to the town. And Hooper slips and it looks like they've gone over a bump. And he said, oh, I'm sorry, James, we're going to have to go and do that again. And Mason said, well, why not do a cutaway shot to a woman accidentally dropping a baby and I run over it and that would be the bump?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Different film. <laughs> Method acting. Yeah, very, you know. go. <laughs>
0: Toby Hooper felt they'd never get away with that on TV at the time. <laughs> Mason is just quality, absolute quality. Yes, definitely. Neil, yeah, Neil.
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. He was—he he basically uh, stole every scene, didn't he? Yeah, fantastic. And he wanted to do it. Yeah, he mm.
0: was—he was quite keen to get involved. And his wife was in it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Mrs. Glick. What other performances stood out for you?
2: I had a little soft spot for the um, for the town drunk, I thought. Oh, <laughs> Elijah
0: Cook Jr., who doesn't?
2: Uh, Weasel Phillips, you know, what, what was his backstory? What happened to him? Why did he marry the hottest girl in town and then lose his wits and become a drunk and all of that sort of thing? And why was the sheriff verbally abusing him and wanting him to act as his snitch?
0: It all started when he failed to get the Maltese Falcon from Humphrey Bogart.
2: <laughs> That's a bit of a forced segue, but never mind. Enjoy. But no, that
0: was him. He was the uh, he was the yeah. Elijah Cook Jr., the Eternal Fall guy. Yeah. But great performance.
2: Great performance, yeah. Yeah. Anybody else? I think I said before the father was quite good, the doctor. I thought he yeah. was good. Yeah. I was not impressed at all with the young lad. Um, Lance Kerwin. Lance Kerwin, yeah, I thought he was just very TV. Mm. No, he he didn't rise to the occasion at all. Most of these, yes, Souls a TV actor, but he, I think he pulled himself up to do this role and added a bit more into it. Mason obviously is a legend, but uh, I didn't think the young lad was uh, was it particularly good.
1: Jeffrey Lewis is the the, the grave digger. Oh, I, yes. I, I think. Oh, great. oh Jeffrey yes. Lewis. Is
0: great. That moment where he gets out of the chair when he's a vampire and it's almost like he levitates Yeah, the way yeah. his body moves, I thought it was tremendous.
3: Yeah, I thought he was very good, yeah.
0: Now, interesting with actors is that, again, on Texas Chainsaw, it was documented some of the people connected with it threatened to kill Hooper if ever they met him again. <laughs> uh, whereas in this, he seemed to get on. The only person he didn't get on with, from what I understand, is Lou Ayers. Every bit, him and David Soul became lifelong friends after this. Most of the cast he actually got on with and went out of his way to get on with, I think. But let's talk about another actor we haven't mentioned yet Reggie Nolder as Barlow, the Nosferatu, played as a Nosferatu like character with animal noises. King didn't particularly
1: like that, but did it work for you, Nile? I thought it did what was Nosferatu 1922? So you're talking sort of fifteen yeah. years difference, 55 or whatever. I thought that was brilliant, terrifying. And I think great, great visuals, you know, because most of the people who'd probably watched the mini series of Salem's Lot hadn't seen Nosferatu. And yeah. I think to kind of tap into one of the great horror films and one of the great vampires, I think it perfectly works for Salem's Lot. Is it derivative? Yeah. But, if you're going to steal from the greatest vampire film ever made, go for it.
0: Yeah. And there's an odd relationship, I think between Mason who plays a Renfield like character and before Barlow gets to town, Stryker's sitting in the antique shop and you could see he's scared. He doesn't want him to come.
2: Yeah. You know, it's yeah.
0: it's just the moment, but yes, yeah, so you've got that horror because this clearly isn't a human character it's well beyond that, and it even frights the person who gains power from it. So, uh, yeah, I thought that was quite impressive. Neil, your thoughts on... Um... Yeah,
3: yeah I, when he arrived, I thought, when uh, you first see him, I thought, oh, that that is good. No, I thought that was a really good turn, that one. Borrow from uh, Nosferatu, why not?
2: Um, he's a superb character. Graham? Yeah, I, I really liked... The character of Barlow. I even enjoyed his packing crate. I thought his packing crate put on a great performance as well, slowly creeping up behind those guys in the truck. Yes. That (laughs) really really made me, that creeped me out. And I thought, oh, oh, right. Okay. That's quite fun. And it was very visual and it was very TV and it was great fun. When he crashes through the window, lands on the floor and, and suddenly first appeared, I can remember watching it. Back on TV when it first came out, and and being really shocked at, at that scene, so it definitely worked for me. Okay, the second time I watched it, I was ready for it. So um, and my wife was watching it with me. Um, she didn't leave the room after fifteen minutes, Jeff, Okay, so, uh, no,
0: just yeah, just mine. She
2: actually put her book down, which was another r- remarkable thing. So she <laughs> put her book down, and then she went, "Oh, Masferatu. and I went, "Yeah, sort of, a bit bluer." I think we both enjoyed that character so pat watched
0: it all then did she
2: yeah yeah she did over the top of her glasses so i don't know how much she could was in focus (laughs) (laughs) she had been reading her book so she had her short-range glasses on then looking at the top
0: now les lasted 30 minutes and walked out the room (laughs) brilliant (sighs) start with a real horror film for her okay let's go back into the, to the show. Not everything is resolved. You know, in the book, because you've got that time and you've got that expanse, all the character stories are resolved, but here you've got things like what happened to Jason Burke? What happened to the Cully story? Did the other guy come back to get him or what, what happened to Cully and the woman? These are things I would have liked to have seen. Was there anything that you felt should have been resolved? Graham?
2: no, No, because I I found all of that sort of Peyton Place, small town drama, a bit of a distraction. I wasn't really that interested in it. Yes, she was having an affair with her boss. Oh, how original is that? What, like that
0: doesn't
2: go on? No, I've never heard of that. (laughs) Exactly. It goes on all the bloody time, so it's not that interesting. I liked the main story so much. I, I wasn't really interested in other points not being resolved. I think at the end, when they become vampire hunters, I'd like to have seen that work its way out. But obviously they'd, they spent quite a bit of t- extra time after the final, where they finally got rid of Barlow, uh, getting to wherever it was, and then the vampires following them and them killing the, the woman vampire.
0: Took two years.
2: I've always said I like films that don't answer all the questions. I like things that are left hanging. So it was fine for me.
1: No? What do you think? For me, it resolves the story that I was interested in. Um, Yeah. Does it leave little things hanging? Yeah. But I think, again, you you would end up having like a larger piece or almost like a soap opera in itself, like a series. I I was very much happy that characters that we, we kind of really enjoyed, we focused in on, it continued for that, you know, the David Soul. So, yeah, are there little strands? That's what you get with these sort of multifaceted different plotline line things, uh, I, I walked away very happy with it.
0: Yeah. Mm. Okay. Well, we're on sort of aspects of storytelling. I mean, one of the things I particularly like about Stephen King is you've got the main story here and you've got something going on to the side that you can't quite see. And in this, clearly, it's the Marsden house. It's the whole history of Saban's Lot that there might be something lurking underneath of it, which he touched in a story called Jerusalem's Lot, a type story. And I like that theme that run through the show of and David Soul kept saying, well, if that house is attracting evil people, why is it attracting me? And there's this like gigantic battle of good and evil going on that you can't see. Did that work for you? Do you think it picked up on the bigger themes of King,
1: Niall? Yeah, I mean, I think Stephen King's stories, all of them, they are about how it's all about choice and who you are and what path you take, looking at The Shining or, you know, the characters and It. Everyone's always very flawed, much like real life, really. It really depends on which path you really choose. And I, I think that's one of the great things about King's writing is that he touches on human nature. And I think that sort of works within this tale. You're talking about the, the having affairs within the town. It's real life and... Yeah. King touches on that so well, which is why his his work is so good. So for me, I think all those little elements work incredibly well and they make it onto the screen, not quite in as much detail, but in enough for you to know that there's a, there's a tiny bit of depth under that surface.
0: Yeah, I think that's a, a very fair point. Neil, as you haven't read the book and have just come to this, did you get that impression there was something bigger going on?
3: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, where did Barlow come from? Um, there's obviously a whole load of other stuff. What else was happening? Yeah, no, I did. Yes, definitely. Uh, and you're in a tiny snippet of it, aren't you? Yes.
2: Yeah. yeah. No, that's fair. Graham. Yeah, I just love the the line: "An evil house attracts evil men," and that's always what I look for in in King's books and in King's work is things can also be evil. Yeah, and evil houses, and, and I suppose ghost stories tend to be haunted houses a lot. But King takes them to a, a much more refined level. So this is a an evil house, and here's an evil vampire, and they get together, and the whole town suffers. I just, I just thought the the bigger story and uh, and the hunt when they go off hunting vampires, and where do these vampires come from, and how do they take over people like. James Mason, and what's that relationship? It's all layers upon layers upon layers. It's great fun. It's great fun. I love it. And, of course, King himself has
0: broadened out the world, if you like, of Salem's Lot. There was a a sequel of sorts, a short story, One for the Road. Anybody read that?
1: I've not,
2: no.
0: I won't spoil it for you. It's in the Night Shift collection.
1: Is that Uh, the one with the
2: vampires in the plane?
0: That's the Night Flyer.
2: The night there we go, right,
0: okay. It's set in a town nearby Salem's Lot a few years later. It's just a little story, but it tells you something about Salem's Lot. If nobody's read it, I'm not going to say a word. All I would say is track it down. It's quite a short, a very short story, but well, well worth reading.
2: And what's it called again?
0: One for the Road. Then there was a movie sequel, Turn to Salem's Lot, which I refused to watch. I don't know if anybody else has seen that. <laughs> nope. I've not, no. No, that was... Uh, I've not
1: even watched the Rob Lowe remake. He did a series about 10, 15 years ago, didn't he? He did. Where he was a David Soul character. No. Um, I've not watched that either, because I, I thought the the Toby Hooper was, was so good that yep. I, I didn't want to ruin it.
0: Uh, and it would have ruined it. It ruined it for me, for a whole host of reasons. <laughs> but we'll talk about that in another show. One of the best versions of this was Radio 4 did a... Six five six six-part version in the mid-'90s with Doug Bradley doing the voice of Barlow. It's just incredible. Doug Bradley, obviously, pinhead in the Hellraiser series, does a tremendous version of it. Well, the story behind this is it was late at night. I had two young children at the time, and I used to just put all the episodes on cassette. Remember them, Neil? Cassette? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you lost me, stuff. Yeah, vaguely. And I'd play them in the car, and I was taking the kids somewhere, And I was really into the story. I think we had had two episodes left to go. It was on a quiet bit. Should be able to play a little bit of this without terrifying (laughs) the children who were five and three at the time. And so I put it on and it's the bit where they get in the house and Barlow's waiting for them. Barlow, not Stryker in the radio version. And I have forgotten. I just got into it, and I drive in. And the next thing I know is, is screaming from my daughter from the back of the car. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, God, look, I'll turn it off. I'll buy you an ice cream. Don't tell your mum. Yes, <laughs> don't, tell <laughs> your don't tell your mum. Don't tell your mum. It <laughs> didn't happen. <laughs> but it is really good. Brilliant. Yeah. So, so they have covered it. And, of course, at the, at the moment, they're doing a TV series of Jerusalem's Lot, And I don't know how close that's going to be to the original short story, which is set a century or so before the event of Salem's Lot. But Warner Brothers, after the success of it, are looking at a big screen version of Salem's Lot. Oh, wow. It's gone a bit quiet because Dr. Sleep didn't get them the money they were hoping for. And my question to you all then on that is, if they go ahead with this big screen version, should it be one film or two? And what would you like to see it cover or
1: change in modern days? I think it should be a couple of films at least. I mean, I, I'd be very happy for them to do a new miniseries. I think TV has moved on so much that I think you could get away with that, be it Netflix or sort of HBO. I do know that Ben Affleck at one point was interested in doing The Stand as like a trilogy. Oh, okay, Yes, I remember that. Um, yeah. Five, six, maybe seven years ago. I think he'd be a great guy to actually tackle that as a longer form piece and star in it, take on the David Sowell part.
3: Oh, as long as it's not David Soul, we're okay,
1: really. Well, well we have him as the, the, the James Mason part. That'll <laughs> yeah, yeah. make everything equal. Yeah,
0: yeah true. Yeah. <laughs> Donald Sutherland played that part in the awful remake. It'd be interesting who would play the part of Stryker today.
3: Bill Nye. It would have to be someone of Mason's quality or it would just be mm. compared all the time, wouldn't Yeah, you? yeah.
0: But, but, but Barlow you could do as he is in the book. In King's book, he speaks, He's yes. you know, he he's, mm-hmm. looks human. He is Dracula to all intents and purposes. Yes. I would be interested to see somebody do it as Dracula, uh, you know, as a, as a proper Barlow.
2: Mm. I really liked the BBC Dracula.
0: Bloke, what was his no, name? No, he was all right, but the show was shit. That sure
1: show was terrible. Yeah. yeah.
2: The first two were good. The third one was just a mess. But
1: Yeah, I enjoyed the first two. And then the third one was oh. one of the worst things I've ever watched <laughs> in my life.
2: <laughs> but, but, <laughs> oh, come on, tell us what you really think of it. <laughs> yeah, but,
0: but don't you think Gatniss has a problem with endings? There's another one that has the problem with endings. I don't know what it is these days. You've got bloody JJ Abrahams. Couldn't do an ending to save his life. Jordan yes. Peel's another one. Great concepts, crap endings. I mean, us. I mean, God, have you seen us now?
1: I haven't seen us, no, no but I, I wasn't particularly taken by um, Good Art. That didn't float my boat too much.
0: Yeah, you, you wait till you ever run across his Twilight Zone series.
1: <laughs> wow.
0: Okay.
2: Um, I, w- I would really like to see it as a, an HBO that level of quality applied to the story and and for them to take their time and go into all the nuances and things like that. Or if if my one desire would be that Jeff Bezos is a huge Stephen King fan, because what he's done to the expanse on the sci-fi show is incredible. Absolutely incredible how they've uh, transferred those, seven, eight books, whatever it is, on, onto the screen. And the production values are through the roof. So if somebody could do it well and do King justice, I'd be really happy.
0: Well, they kicked the Dark Tower into touch, so I think there's little chance of them doing this.
2: Yeah, that was the Wolves of Carla, wasn't yeah. it?
0: Yeah. Although HBO, their version of The Outsider was amazing. Jesus. I mean, it's slightly overlong, but it's so well-acted, you just don't care. Niall, have you seen it? I haven't, no. of oh, so he can track it down, honestly. It is.
1: I must give it a go, yeah. Yeah,
0: you know, Ben Mendelsohn, Paddy Constantine turned up in it. And I was really thrown when he just appears, thinking, what's he doing in this? And he's great again, You know, really good. It's just so well done. Neil, I will start with you. Your final thoughts on the 1979 version of Salem's Lot. Would you recommend it to people? I'm well, I, I,
3: I thought it was a lot better than I thought it was going to be. That must have been, I just didn't like David soul. And that's the only thing I had actually quite enjoyed it, which I was very surprised at. And when I found out it was vampires, because I had no idea what it was about. And once I found out it was vampires and everything, I, I just started, started to enjoy it. And I
2: came back to it and I thought it's aged a bit, but a solid story. And I enjoyed David soul. I thought he was great. And um, this time I was really, really. So much more taken with James Mason than I was the last time, and I just thought it was great. Enjoyed the music; thought the music was fine. Set and the production values were great. You know, cinematography, okay, all right, of its time, very TV, good, solid. I think somebody said earlier on journeyman type uh, direction, but yeah, it it worked. It worked for me. It certainly. St- made my wife put her book down and pay attention to the tv so it must be
1: good is it as good as stephen king's book no no um is it a little dated yes but i've seen it a few times i enjoy it i I recommend it to people so i think it's a perfectly good adaptation of the novel it's not flawless but i think it's 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 good fun
0: and I would agree. I would agree with that. It is great fun. I just want to pick up on that point that Graham was saying about the music by Harry Sukman. He'd worked quite closely in his younger days with Bernard Herman, and I think an element of that came across in the music as well. But I think overall, for me, David Soule and James Mason drive this. I didn't think there was any fat on it. It was quite lean even at three hours, and it's a cracking good yarn. What I have to say is thank you all for a fascinating discussion about a surprisingly good version. We'll return in the near future with a new panel to discuss Stanley Kubrick's film The Shining. Well, thank you very much for joining us. I hope you can make more of our Stephen King discussions. Yes, please. Definitely. It's been an absolute blast, so thank you for having me. No, no, thank you. Thank so you. To everybody out there, stay well and read King.